Well, I handed out to a few of you, because uh, I only had three copies of what I handed out last week. I did include in the email that if you got one of those last week, to bring it with you this week. Don't know if you did or not. Uh, it was a seven-pager. It was monstrosity here uh, that um, I gave you last week. And uh, this week, we're going to continue examining a, um, some more aspects of covenant theology. So last week, what uh, we did was just kind of gave an overview based on this table that I handed out, talking a lot about hermeneutics, their theological covenants that are in their system, and Israel and the church. We didn't really get into stuff below that, and this week we'll start to get into stuff below that a little bit. On the second page of that table, you'll see there's that uh, section, Limited Atonement. Uh, Not all people who hold to limited atonement are covenant theologians, but all people who are covenant theologians hold to limited atonement, which is why we're talking about it, okay? So uh, we're going to talk about Calvinism for the first half of this evening, which includes that aspect, limited atonement, and then we will be talking about the covenant theology view of the law after that, okay? So if you have that table from last week, page two is where we're going to be doing a lot of our living this evening, okay? Calvinism, we've all heard of it. Hopefully we would all define it accurately, but it's probably defined in several different ways, isn't it? So um, let's start by just talking about who John Calvin was. John Calvin was a French theologian in the 1500s, okay? Maybe you didn't realize he was French, but he was, he was a Frenchman, and he lived in the 16th century. Not only was he one of the most influential people of the Reformation, uh, he's actually one of the most influential people of all time, just like in world history of all people who have ever breathed, okay? Uh, so that's just something to know, and that's a reason why he should be on your radar. He uh, defected from Roman Catholicism. You know, there were many people uh, during the Reformation who were Roman Catholic, and then they left that. I mean, Martin Luther, of course, is like the most famous one with that, right? Uh, they wanted to reform that church. They had some serious disagreements, and John Calvin was one of them. He defected from them, and he became the father of uh, essentially what, is, what could be known as Presbyterianism. Okay, where did Presbyterians come from? Well, you could say their theology comes from John Calvin. Okay, he's their main guy. He published uh, this pretty amazing set of works called his Institutes, Calvin's Institutes. The full title is The Institutes of the Christian Religion. First published when he was 27. And then they were finalized through the final printing when he was the ripe old age of 32. All right? That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And uh, that set of doctrines has been maybe the most influential set of doctrines that there have been in church history. Uh, They're still read widely today, Calvin's Institutes. And of course, uh, you probably know his name and the theology that bears his name because he emphasized the sovereignty of God in salvation. That was his big thing, what he became known for, I should say, uh, talking about election, predestination, etc. All right. So there's your John Calvin knowledge. Got that? Put a pin in that for a moment. There's this other thing that happened in church history. This time I'm not talking about a person, but a council called the Council of Dort. Dort is a city, and there was a gathering together of 
Calvinists in that city. Okay. It was an international council um, that, that was comprised of churches that followed Calvin's teaching. They were beginning to be known as Reformed at that point. And it was a five-month meeting. You thought you'd been in some long meetings in your life. The Council of Dort lasted five months. And they were uh, gathered together to formally articulate the heart of Calvinism against a group called the Arminians. Okay, so how many, just to get you a little bit involved here, uh, how many have heard of Arminianism? Okay, all right, two-thirds or more, that's good. Well, um, that was kind of like the view that was not Calvinism at that time that talked about how man is saved. So you had Calvinists and Arminianists, and they were developing their own articulation of theology. Arminians came from the school of thought headed up by Jacob Arminius, and Calvinists came from the school of thought headed up by John Calvin. Well, interestingly, these followers of Arminius put together five points. I'm sure you guys have heard the five points of Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, that sort of thing. Well, before that, it was five-point Arminianism. That came first. And their five points were as follows. Number one, election is conditioned upon faith in Christ, which is uh, seen in God's foreknowledge. So the way that they described how election worked was that God foresaw who would believe, and then those people who would believe were chosen for salvation. Their second point was that Christ's atonement is unlimited in its uh, possible application. But the application is limited to those who believe in Christ. Their third point was that man is totally depraved and cannot save himself apart from God's grace. Their fourth point was that God's grace is resistible, that He doesn't come upon anyone irresistibly. And their fifth point was that it is uncertain as to whether or not a person can lose his salvation. And later, that group, I don't know if everybody in the group, I don't know how this worked, at least the most influential ones of that group decided, actually, yes, man could lose his salvation. At that time, they didn't make a statement one way or the other, all right? So they had their five points, the Arminians. And at this Council of Dort, you have the Calvinists coming together saying, well, we've got to do something about this because we don't like the way they've articulated things. So who knows what I, the acronym that I'm about to draw on the board? Yeah. <laughs> TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. Let's see how much we know about Calvinism. Somebody say, what does the T stand for? Okay, total depravity. Okay, no. <laughs> what does the U stand for? Unconditional election. Okay, the L. What is it? Yeah, limited atonement. The I. Irresistible grace. And the P. Perseverance. 
of the saints. All right. So here you go. There are your five points of Calvinism. It took five months for the group to come up with five points. And there they are. So total depravity teaches all of humanity is dead in sin. No one is able to save himself or to please God in any way. Agree or disagree? No, that's good. I don't like how weakly we agreed, but I'm glad we agreed. Unconditional election states, in eternity past, God chose a certain group of people for salvation based solely on His sovereign will or His sovereign decree. Now remember, the Arminians, their view was that according to God's foreknowledge, knowing who would eventually believe, those people were chosen for salvation. The Calvinists got together and said, no, we're not going to figure out that puzzle that way. We're just going to go totally with God's will, God's decree. He, man doesn't have anything to do with it based on God's will, God's decree. That's, that's what they mean by unconditional election. It's not conditioned upon man having uh, a faith that God would foresee. Okay. L, limited atonement. The Father determined and the Son agreed that the atonement of Christ should be made for the elect alone. So it's limited not only in its application, but it's limited in its possible application. And it will be applied to everyone for whom it was made. Remember, the Arminian view is that it's unlimited in its potential. But it's, it's limited by its application, and the application is limited by who has faith. The Calvinists said, well, no, God chose a certain people out of the whole of humanity that He's going to save unconditionally, and those are the only people Christ died for because those are the only people that God chose. Okay, that's where they're going with that. Irresistible grace, the I, the ones that God elected and the ones that the Son died for will be drawn by God to Himself through an efficacious grace, an irresistible grace, that when the time comes that God has appointed for those people to exercise faith in Jesus, it's going to happen because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them, going to enter their hearts, and at that time, it will be an irresistible moment, an irresistible work of grace that that person would be converted in that very moment. God makes His elect willing to believe, and He gives them the faith to believe irresistibly. And P, perseverance of the saints, says, after coming to faith and being regenerated by God, the elect will persevere in faith. They will never lose their salvation. They will not apostatize, but the elect will persevere in the faith till the end of their lives. So that's what those points mean, and that was their response to uh, the group of Arminians. So now the question is, uh, who are the people that hold to this again, and why are we even talking about this? <laughs> okay, well, um, anybody who believes in covenant theology, anybody who has that view that we've been talking about last week and now in the weeks ahead, um, anybody who holds to the covenant theology will be a five-point Calvinist. You cannot be a covenant theologian and be short of five-point Calvinism. The two go together. Um, and there's also a connection between the covenant of redemption that we talked about last week and limited atonement. So just to remind you, and if you have your sheet, turn with me to the first page where it talks about the covenant of redemption here. The covenant of redemption, which is a theological covenant that is in the system of covenant theology, 
it states that in eternity past, a covenant was made between the Father and the Son, though some people also would say the Spirit, agreeing to accomplish man's salvation in the world that would be created and subsequently corrupted by sin. The Father elected a people to give to the Son. The Son agreed to take the place of those whom the Father gave. So because you have this covenant between Father and Son, and the Father says, I've selected these people, the Son says, I will die for those people, that kind of goes right into limited atonement. I I trust you can see that, because we're talking about a people that God's going to save, and why would Jesus die for more than whom the Father has elected? Uh, Some covenant theologians will say, if Jesus were to die for more than the elect, then he would basically be going rogue. You would have the Trinity being broken in their unity because Jesus would be going against the Father because the Father's saying, we're saving these people. What are you doing dying for more people? Okay. So limited atonement is directly connected to that covenant of redemption. But it's not just covenant theologians who believe in limited atonement. There are also a good number of dispensationalists. We are dispensational here. There are a good number who also believe in limited atonement, not because of the covenant of redemption, but because of other evidences in Scripture. John MacArthur, for example, is someone who's the five-point Calvinist. Steve Lawson would be a five-point Calvinist, even though he's dispensational. I would imagine Todd Friel would be there too, um, and a host of others, okay, just to drop some names that you might pick up on. So that's what limited atonement is all about, and that's an overview of what Calvinism is. So now I'll stop yammering on here and see if you guys are brave enough to share any thoughts about any of that. Lizzie's always brave enough. Yes, Lizzie. You should have been here in the previous weeks, Lizzie. So thankfully, these are all recorded. I'll send you a link and you can catch up. All right. Okay, so dispensationalism and Calvinism aren't incompatible. Someone can be a five-point Calvinist and a dispensationalist. Covenant theology and dispensationalism are incompatible. You've got to pick one or the other. All right. Now, so the reason we're talking about this is because we're examining covenant theology. We've gotten to the point in this series now for the last few weeks, we're looking at covenant theology specifically since it is the opposing view of dispensationalism. And we're just saying, we're bringing out the elements that are the key features of covenant theology, and Calvinism is one of them. Melissa, then Andy. The word reformed? Well, it's actually not a basic question because here's the problem. Everybody wants to be Reformed. Well, I shouldn't say everybody. Most people want to to use that label Reformed. So you've got um, someone who's a four-point Calvinist. Anytime you hear that someone's a four-point Calvinist, that means they've dropped the L, okay? So they're tulips, okay? And so you got someone who's a four-point Calvinist who says, well, I'm Calvinistic in my theology. I'm not a Calvinist per se because that's the whole thing, right? So I'm I'm Calvinistic-ish or whatever. So I'm Reformed. Guy to his right, I realize this is my left, but it's your right. Guy to his right says, well, you're not a five-pointer. I'm a five-pointer. I'm reformed and you're not. Guy to his right says, well, yeah, you're a five-pointer, but you're a dispensationalist. A true dispensationalist is a covenant theologian. You're not reformed. I'm reformed. Guy to his right says, well, yeah, you're a covenant theologian. That's good, but you're a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. So you're not reformed. I'm reformed. So... Depending on who you're asking all the way down this chain, it's a different answer as to what Reformed is. Okay. Andrew? Well, I agree with a lot of those. Yeah. Total depravity, unconditional election. 
sure. <laughs> yeah. So are you reformed? <laughs> yeah. Well, in this, in this church, we're going to have people all over the board here. Our church doctrinal statement doesn't say where we stand, you know, on each one of these issues here, except, I mean, we obviously make a stand, you cannot lose your salvation. Okay. Um, because that, that one is clear enough in scripture for us to say, yeah, but, but you're going to have different articulations of these things in this church. All right. Go ahead. That's this. The five points of Calvinism. It, it's, the nickname is the doctrines of grace. Which I, I can appreciate the sentiment there. It does kind of tend to confuse things. But I think a lot of people want to call them the doctrines of grace to get away from having a man's name on the label, which I very much appreciate. I don't like labels really generally. No, none of us really do. But I really don't like using a man's name. I mean, that is so clearly like the First Corinthians 1 error. Uh, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. I mean, that's just so crazy. So, yeah. Thoughts, questions, more? Yes, sir? So the five souls. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the five, so the five solos are not the five points of Calvinism. We had too many fives floating around here, okay? So that is a, but I mean, the harp thing is, yeah, it's a five, five item list, and it was also during the time of the Reformation, just like this. So you got, it's easy to get things confused. But yeah, the five solas, um, that just defines Protestantism, really. The Arminians are all about five solas, but they're all against the five points of Calvinism. So you got to keep those things a little bit distinct. Well, yeah, and even in the Arminians' articulation, um, they said, man is totally depraved and cannot save himself apart from God's grace. So that one, even it wasn't even different from the Arminians. They just wanted to make sure, you know. It is where you have to start, right? <laughs> so, but. Well, and when you get to the articulation, so I said we'll have some different articulations of things. So, like when you get into... Um, Let's see, how did, the, how did I say the Calvinists described that? Uh, yeah, the um, man is una- unsaved man is unable to please God in any way. You'll have some different articulations of that. And, and you get into the realm of, are there any morally neutral acts? The, the unregenerate American soldier who dives on a grenade and gives his own life for the sake of others is that not a good act, right? And so you get into debates on how to articulate that. Yeah. That's always a fun discussion. Sometime when you can't sleep, you know, start jotting down your thoughts on that and get back to me. Joanna? No. No. Yeah. So, yeah. So within dispensationalism... Um, you'll have all kinds of views. You'll go from five-point Calvinism to people who don't want to be associated with Calvinism at all. There's a big spectrum within. But once you get into ultra-dispensationalism, which really is close to heresy, if, if not heresy, okay, it depends on how we're defining that. Um, once you get to that point, none of them are going to be uh, Calvinistic at all. No. 
What, what you'll notice about most heresies, and this, you know, this doesn't prove anything. It's just an observation. What you'll notice about most heresies and most cults is that they're going to take an Arminian approach to salvation. Again, not proving anything, just an observation. Okay. Anything else on this subject? All right, well, that's good, because I got more to say about the next subject, which is the law. All right, and these things kind of go together. And actually, I'll, um, I'll tie this in on the fly here. Let's see if this makes sense. When it comes to... Um, actually, I need to give you more Bible. I can't move on until I give you more Bible. Uh, where do you think um, the Calvinists would go to see these things in Scripture? There are two main passages, but there's no two right answers. Um, if you want to do a little study on this to learn a little more, where do you think a Calvinist would say, go to these places in the New Testament? Okay, yeah, so, the, so a really big one is Romans 8, particularly 28 through 30. Okay, there's another New Testament passage, though. That's pretty critical and more explicit than Romans 8. Ephesians 1, you just basically start at 1, you could start at 3 if you wanted, and goes down to 13. All right, those two passages are critical. Now, if you were more on the um, Arminian side of things, more of the non-Calvinistic side of things, what do you think you would emphasize in Scripture? What, what aspects of Scripture would you say, yeah, I'm not comfortable with like unconditional election, for instance. What would you be emphasizing from? The... Why, why John 3.16? What's in there? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got these world passages, and there are several, and you've got these uh, whosoever, but I'll put whoever, passages in there, okay? You've got a lot of those, don't you? And so um, when we're talking about unconditional election, that God is electing people apart from their faith based on His will alone, that God is coming upon people irresistibly, that there's no choice. Well, the people who are non-Calvinistic say, well, what, what do you do with this stuff here? Christ is dying for the world. The world is called to repentance. Whoever believes will be saved. You know, they're like, hey, what do you do with these? And of course, both sides have their answers to all these things. But uh, that's stuff to consider as you do your own little study. Okay, some places to start. Okay, feel a little bit better now. Got at least some Bible references on the board. So, um, as we think about limited atonement, Here's something that's really interesting. If you are a, um, a covenant theologian, an aspect of what you believe about the atonement of Christ is that it isn't found only in His death, but that the atonement of Christ is also found in His life. Now, it's not apart from His death. His death is central to the whole thing. But it's in His life. If you, uh, again, have your table that I gave you from last week, look down with me at Covenant of Works on page 1. Covenant of Works. And uh, look at the definition here for Covenant of Works. It says, In the garden, God made a covenant with Adam, where it was a, wherein it was agreed that if he maintained righteous works only, personally, perfectly, and perpetually, he would continue on to enjoy eternal life 
forever. If you have that in your theology, that um, perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to law imparts life, then you believe that Jesus then was not only living a life going to the cross to die for you, but he was living a life for you, keeping the law for you. And so when you believe in Jesus, when you're converted to Christ, not only does his blood wash away your sins, but his life of law keeping is put on your account because he was fulfilling a covenant of works. I'll pause there for a moment and see what you think about that. That's a, I know that's a lot to soak in here in a moment. Hmm. I can't disagree with you on that one. Yep. But if you start with the covenant of works and you're looking for a covenant of works to be fulfilled, you can see how you'd get there, right? Especially if the stipulation for that covenant of works, like many covenant theologians have said, was the Ten Commandments, that God gave Adam the Ten Commandments in the garden to keep, and he couldn't do it. Well, Jesus comes along, and he perfectly keeps the Ten Commandments to earn us life through the Ten Commandments. Well, Jesus did keep the law. Correct, correct. But how that... Yes. How that, how that gets transposed to Adam, I have no idea. Yeah, well... Adam failed, and this gets into Romans 5. The first Adam failed, second Adam succeeds. First Adam failed to keep the covenant of works, which is not what Romans 5 says, but that's how they read it. Second Adam comes along and keeps the covenant of works. So let me, um, again, if you've got the packet, page 5, let me show you a quote, uh, two quotes from R.C. Sproul, pages 5 and 6. These are longer quotes, and we love R.C. Sproul here. Okay, we share his resources. He is no heretic. But on this point, we do disagree. And uh, down at the bottom of page five, here's a a quote from R.C. Sproul. I don't think there's any more important text in all the New Testament that defines the work of Jesus than this one, where it says uh, when Jesus was being baptized, he was to fulfill all righteousness, that Jesus was sent to fulfill all righteousness. And that meant to the Jew, uh, and what that meant to the Jew was to obey every jot and tittle of the law. Because now Jesus is not acting in his baptism for himself, but for his people. See, this is what I'm talking about with the atonement begins with the life of Jesus. Jesus was baptized for you, R.C. Sproul is saying. Which, interestingly, that's not in the law. But, okay, next sentence. And if his people are required to keep the Ten Commandments, he keeps the Ten Commandments. What does Jesus do? He obeys the law perfectly, receives the blessing and not the curse. But there's a double imputation that we will look at later at the cross where my sin is transferred to his account. My sin is carried over and laid upon him in the cross. But in our redemption, his righteousness is imputed to us, which righteousness he wouldn't have if he didn't live this life of perfect obedience. So the righteousness you receive in your salvation is not the eternal righteousness of God in covenant theology. The righteousness you receive in your salvation is the righteousness of Jesus' 33-year earthly life. Okay, next page, page 6, top of page 6. This is an even longer quote, but it gets to the heart of this. And then I'll pause again for thoughts and questions. R.C. Sproul, beyond the negative fulfillment of the covenant of works and taking the punishment 
do those who disobey it, Jesus offers the positive dimension that is vital to our redemption. He wins the blessing of the covenant of works on all of the progeny of Adam who put their trust in Jesus. Where Adam is, was the covenant breaker, Jesus is the covenant keeper. Where Adam failed to gain the blessedness of the tree of life, Christ wins that blessedness by his obedience, which blessedness he provides for those who put their trust in him. In this work of fulfilling the covenant for us in our stead, theology speaks of the active obedience of Christ. That is, Christ's redeeming work includes not only his death, but his life. His life of perfect obedience becomes the sole ground of our justification. It is his perfect righteousness gained via his perfect obedience that is imputed to all who put their trust in him. Therefore, Christ's work of active obedience is absolutely essential to the justification of anyone. Without Christ's active obedience to the covenant of works, there is no reason for imputation. There is no ground for justification. If we take away the covenant of works, we take away the active obedience of Jesus. If we take away the active obedience of Jesus, we take away the imputation of his righteousness to us. If we take away the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, we take away justification by faith alone. So, very, very strong statement saying you can't be justified by faith alone if Jesus doesn't keep the law on your behalf. Have you ever thought of the gospel that way before? <laughs> that is, that's what's central to covenant theology. The covenant of works is central to covenant theology. Okay? So, thoughts or questions there? <clears throat> Correct. Very, yeah, absolutely right. So, and I think I believe, I know I believe, that there's, there is a, a double thing. Yes, oh that yes. At the cross. Yes, yes. That is the forgiveness of our sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Yes. Correct. He was born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law. Right. Yes. But he, he said that the sign he was going to give for his, his sacrifice was going to be the sign of Jonah. Yep. Three days. Long. Yep. Yeah, right. They were completely, even though he told them over and over, they were completely taken back when he was crucified. Yes. So apparently this covenant that we're talking about was unclear to Christ. Right, well, yeah, and then the covenant of works language, and that this is the issue, it doesn't come up until the Reformation. It's really, I mentioned last week, um, Zwingli was a clear articulator of this. And uh, a lot of it had to do with his view of infant baptism, too, which an episode of the Do Theology podcast just released today on infant baptism, which goes into all that you could listen to. But um, 
that, that it becomes problematic when you emphasize this covenant that's not in the Bible so much that you get to the point where you say you don't have justification by faith alone without this covenant that's not in the Bible. That becomes a problem. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5.21 real quick. This is where we'll be um, on Sunday for the message. Um, and just to look at something basic, because what you just said, Andy, about the um, exchange that happens is absolutely correct. And we certainly don't want it to uh, don't want to come across as though we don't believe there was an exchange. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty one. Someone read that, please. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right. So you've got righteousness on one side and sin on the other. And you've got uh Sin being put onto one account, righteousness being put onto another account. Whose sin is being transferred to Jesus? Okay. Just the elect or... No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so our sin is being put onto Jesus. Now, according to that verse, what righteousness is being put onto our account? Okay. Is there a, is there a passage of the Bible that you can think of that limits this righteousness to the 33 years of Jesus' earthly life. Now, the closest you can get to, in my estimation, and I'm open to being instructed on this for sure, the, the closest you can get to is in 1 Corinthians 1, where uh, Paul says that Jesus has become to us the righteousness of God. And even then, I don't think that's limiting it at all. Um, I, I, what I get uncomfortable with is limiting the righteousness that's imputed to our account. Um, I think it's the very righteousness of God, the eternal righteousness of God, not a 33-year righteousness. Okay, So um, that is the distinction that we're making here, is what righteousness is being put on our account. And if you start with this view that there's a covenant of works that has to be fulfilled, well, then you start looking at the life of Jesus, and now the righteousness is limited to the 33-year life of Jesus. Okay, But I don't, I don't think that's where we should go. Jim? Mm-hmm. It didn't come with any value as forgiveness until it Yep. Yep. So I mean it's like to me they're they're concentrating on the unblemished part rather than the death. Well, and there's a another major issue that we haven't touched on yet. Um let me let me give you the phrase, the theological phrase, and see if you can find the issue that we haven't brought up yet. We get the righteousness of eternal life through Christ's law-keeping. What's the problem with that statement? What's one of the problems with that statement? We get the righteousness of eternal life. We get righteousness and we get eternal life, however you want to phrase that, through Christ's law-keeping. Lizzie?
Yeah, that's not the angle I was coming from, but I think there's something there that could be explored for sure. Melissa? Okay. Yeah, so now we're, now we're getting to the point here. Was the law ever given as a means to get eternal life? In fact, and here's kind of the, the thing I was wanting us to, to get to. Uh, I'll just say it. Can the law impart life? No, in fact, Paul says explicitly, if there was a law given that could impart life, then we would get righteousness by the law. But what does the law do to us? It kills, kills. Now, of course, there's Jesus who was not born in sin, and so that's why he was able to keep the law perfectly. The law didn't kill Jesus. The law didn't condemn Jesus until it was the point where he was made sin on our behalf and cursed everyone who hangs on a tree, is what the law says. But it's not that... uh, that the law can give life. It can't do that. Paul says that explicitly. And so um, anytime someone wants to start going that direction in their theology, it's like, well, wait a second. The law can't do that. The, the law is just the law. It's, it's words engraved on stone is what Paul says. Okay. It can't impart life. So, okay. Uh, Tyler, and then I got to talk more about the law. Okay. Just to kind of pick up where Lizzie was, I think that um, maybe what you were saying is that covenant theology saying that Jesus somehow gained this righteousness that he then imputes or account that he didn't have that before, that he's not innately uh, righteous and worthy prior to his incarnation. So, and then going back to what you were saying, Andy, is the fact that Jesus is the perfect one of God enables him to perfectly keep the law. It's not him perfectly keeping the law that makes it the righteous law of God, right. which is how this statement of Mark 12 tends to read. It's like breaking off Jesus' life from his Okay, page two of the packet. We got the packet there with you. Page two, I want to look at those last two rows on that page about the law and talk about the law for the rest of our time. And we'll stay on that definition column. The definition of the division of the law and the definition of the role of the law. Okay, so the division of the law in covenant theology is defined this way. The law given through Moses in the Old Testament has three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial. The moral aspect of the law is binding on humanity from creation to consummation, summed up in the Ten Commandments. Most who hold to covenant theology believe that the civil and ceremonial aspects were binding on humanity only from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. And then the role of the law ties right into this. Because the moral aspect of the law is still binding, it must have a sanctifying element. Thus, one of the uses of the law is for Christians to look to it to grow in the faith. All right, so you got three categories of the law. Um, We'll go ceremonial first, civil, moral. How many of you have heard this, three categories of the law? Anybody? Okay, a few of us. I used to take this view, and I don't anymore, all right? So um, ceremonial has to do with the rituals. When you read the Old Testament, it's talking about all these offerings. You got to kill the goat. You got to kill the bull. You got to take the grain. You got to wave this. You got to do this, that, and the other thing. Holidays. Okay, all of these things that are very clearly foreshadowing the coming of Christ as the New Testament authors make explicit, especially Hebrews. Okay, this has been fulfilled in Jesus 
obviously, right? The ceremonial uh, rituals that are found in the law. Then you have the civil category of the law, which is, um, uh, let's see, how can I succinctly state that? Say that again? Yeah, yeah, like national government. There we go, national government. So this is, you're out in the woods, and you're chopping down a tree, and your axe head flies off and lands in your neighbor's eye, and he's dead. Okay, now what do you do? The law talks about that. That's a civil law, okay? It has to do with national government stuff in Israel. So most who hold to covenant theology will recognize, okay, these two, that was for the Old Testament time. We're not in the Old Testament time anymore. Done. Now, moral is um, all ethical morality stuff. And in uh, most circles, they're going to say that's summed up in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Uh, America, I think, has um, taken the default view that, yes, the... There are three categories. There's the moral category, and it remains forever. It's perpetual. And it's uh, binding. It's perpetually binding. So that's why, like in America, you got your courthouses uh, with the Ten Commandments outside of it, right? And that was like a big thing, I don't know how many years ago in America. It's like, we got to keep the Ten Commandments outside the courthouses. we got to keep the Ten Commandments in the schools, that sort of thing. Um. Well, the, the traditional covenant theology or reform view says you got three categories. That last one is perpetually binding. So uh, I've given you the big picture. Now let me walk you through a bit of church history. Uh, Luther's perspective, Calvin's perspective, and then the general view today. And then uh, we'll talk about it. Martin Luther, when it came to the law, he taught this. That the law as a whole serves to condemn us totally. It is intended only to lead us to despair so that we would then embrace the sweet relief of the gospel. The law exists to basically make us, you know, an inch tall so that we would sense our need for the gospel. And that's like it. If he, were, if he was to say, what's the law? That's how he would sum it up. And he heavily emphasized the distinction between law and gospel. That became a a cornerstone element of Martin Luther's theology. He says, look, the law is what we do to, uh, for God in response to His commands, and it just shows us we stink at it. That's it. The gospel, on the other hand, is what God has done for us. And it's the life-giving message that continues to give life. Even when you become a Christian, it continues to give life. The gospel does, not the law. As a Christian, the law continues to condemn you. But all that does is take you back to the cross. He's not saying you lose your salvation every time you sin. That's not what he's saying. But when you look at the law, even as a Christian, you're reminded you need the gospel, and it keeps driving you back to the gospel. That's it. He taught that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, and therefore he took the law's place as the ultimate and immediate standard for the conduct of God's people. Martin Luther believed that our ultimate standard and the most immediate standard for Christians is not the law, but Christ himself. And that's how he defined the law of Christ. You'll see that in the New Testament in a couple places. Paul says we are to be under and to fulfill the law of Christ. He says that Martin Luther taught that's not the law of Moses. 
That's Christ's person and work, His ministry. You are to imitate Christ. Okay, that's the Christian's call. So let me give you a few quotes from Luther. One, he says, Those who lapse from the gospel to the law are no better off than those who lapse from grace to idolatry. He said, To turn one's eyes away from Jesus means to turn them to the law. Mutually exclusive. Okay. And then he said this. This is his commentary on Galatians 2.19 or 3.19. Someone can grab that for us. But uh, listen to what Luther says about this. Here's a paragraph. He says, Paul does not only refer to the ceremonial law, but to the whole law. We are not to think that the law is wiped out. It stays. It continues to operate in the wicked. But a Christian is dead to the law. For example, Christ by his resurrection became free from the grave, and yet the grave remains. Peter was delivered from prison, yet the prison remains. The law is abolished, as far as I'm concerned, when it has driven me into the arms of Christ. Yet the law continues to exist and to function, but it no longer exists for me. My conscience lives to Christ under another law, a new and better law, the law of grace." So Martin Luther was pretty strong in the way he described uh, what it meant to die to the law. Would someone read Galatians 2, um, 18 and 19? Someone got it? Mike, you got it? All right. Paul says he died to the law. And so Martin Luther says, look, that means, it, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's abolished. It's fulfilled in Christ. I'm looking to Christ only. I'm not looking to the law. I'm looking to Christ. That was Luther's view. And uh, he says he's under another law. He's under a new law. He's under a better law, which is grace. He didn't see the two as compatible. Okay. So that's Luther. John Calvin comes along now, a little bit later. And he agreed with Luther on the distinction between law and gospel. Okay, John Calvin didn't come along saying, no, actually the law is the gospel. Okay, that didn't happen. But he did emphasize a use of the so-called moral law in a way that Luther didn't. And um, this Calvinistic view, and this is now the, the main view of covenant theology, this view totally relies on this categorization. You have to be able to itemize the law to be able to get to this place, okay? So there's this teaching that Christians are free from the curse of the law, but Christians are not free from the moral law. So even though there are no curses for you as a Christian, you are still bound to the law, which immediately brings up a question. What is the law if there are no consequences? <laughs> what is a speed limit sign? Yeah, that's right. What is a speed limit sign if it's just a suggestion? Well, it's not a law anymore, is it? So, th actually, it's, it's really, um, it's not that we're bound to the law because there are no consequences. The law has to have consequences, but that's the language that they employ. So, John Calvin said this about the, uh, the moral law. The law is the best instrument for enabling Christians daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what the will of the Lord is, which they aspire to follow. Listen to this. This is what John Calvin says about the law. By frequently meditating upon it, 
he will be excited to obedience and confirmed in it and so drawn away from the slippery paths of sin. Now, the problem I have with this, besides what I already mentioned about the consequences thing, is that that's just not the way the New Testament talks about the law. The New Testament never tells the Christian to keep the law. And the New Testament never says that the Christian will be excited to obedience by the law. What does Paul say? I wouldn't have known but to to covet if the law didn't say you shouldn't covet. And then when the commandment came, sin took advantage of the commandment and enemy produced death. And that's the way Paul consistently talks about the law. He, He says it's holy, just, and good. That's the same chapter as where he's talking about coveting, Romans chapter 7. The law is holy, the law is just, the law is good, but the law cannot impart life and the law cannot sanctify So I definitely agree much more with Luther than I do with Calvin on this point, that uh, the law can't be divided, number one. I mean, I I guess I kind of skipped over that basic point. The Bible never does this. And if you try to, you're going to run into one dandy of a time, because there are many laws out there that you have to figure out, well, is that ceremonial or is that moral? The Sabbath, for example. If the moral law is summed up in the Ten Commandments, what are you going to do with the Sabbath? That's the fourth command. If you're saying it's binding perpetually, well, you better set aside your Saturdays and make it a day of rest. Uh, Now, of course, today, the vast, vast majority of covenant theologians will say, well, we're keeping the fourth commandment when we worship on Sundays. The Sabbath was not a day of worship, it was a day of rest, and the Sabbath always meant Saturday, not Sunday. You got two big challenges there, don't you? (laughs) The Bible doesn't reverse that ever. The New Testament doesn't come along and reverse that Old Testament command. Okay, so um, you can't really itemize the law this way. It just doesn't work. And uh, the second thing is that the New Testament never tells us to be sanctified by the law. We're just not instructed that way as Christians. So again, I tend to agree a lot more with Luther. But let me give you um, just one final thing, uh, and then we'll, this will take a couple minutes, and then we'll kick around thoughts and questions here at the end. When it comes to the covenant theology view today, um, you know, talking post-Calvin, bringing it up to the present day, the law-gospel distinction remains vital. The law is not the gospel. The gospel is not the law. That's a very good principle that they maintain. They, of course, maintain justification by grace alone, through faith alone. I mean, absolutely, they're going to be the best preachers on that, usually, that you'll hear. Um, however, they do present, covenant theologians present the moral law, so-called moral law, as the rule of life for Christians. You are to be sanctified as a Christian by keeping the moral law as you're led by the Spirit. That's how that is taught. So let me give you three quotes by a guy named Willem van German. He wrote, uh, he contributed to a multi-author volume on this about Christian, different Christian views on law keeping. And he's the covenant theology guy. He said these things. I got three quotes. Number one, As we keep the moral law and pursue the perfection of righteousness in union with Jesus Christ and walk by the power of the Spirit, we develop a wholeness, a wholeness that involves the integration of our heart, speech, acts, and manners with the mind of Christ. We must constantly check ourselves by the moral... Oh, I did a typo. We must. We must constantly check ourselves by the moral law to see whether we truly love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, where do you go in the Bible to look at the moral law to check yourself? That's my question to a guy like that, right? Ten Commandments? You can check yourself by the fourth command? <laughs> okay, now I'm, I'm not saying there's no value. There's absolute value there. It's the Word of God. 
But how do you find the moral law in the Bible? Because the Bible doesn't present the law as here's your moral category to check yourself. And, does the, and the Bible just doesn't say we're sanctified that way. Okay, the next two quotes are shorter. Quote number two. If Christ really is the standard, the Christian will obey the law of love, and in so doing will also obey the Ten Commandments. Okay. Quote number three. We should seek to understand, apply, and keep the whole law while living by the grace of God. Those seem a little bit mutually exclusive, don't they? So now, even though they keep a distinction between law and gospel, there's this idea within covenant theology that it's by God's grace now you are able to keep the law and be sanctified by it. So even though they're separate when it comes to salvation, when you get into sanctification, there's kind of a blending that happens here. Okay. No, he wouldn't say that, no. No. But he would, I, I mean, he would be a, a Sabbatarian. I mean, Presbyterians especially, the Westminster Confession of Faith is Sabbatarian. It just changes it to Sunday and makes it about worship. But it's like, hey, you must set aside Sunday as a law for the Christian. Same with the London Baptist Confession, the 1689. Same thing. They're both Sabbatarian quote-unquote, Sabbatarian, because they make it Sunday instead of Saturday, which isn't the Sabbath. So I got in a discussion with somebody who says that we need to keep the law. From one day I was, that we got to keep the Sabbath. Saturday or Sunday, was this person saying? Saturday. Saturday. Well, so that person's more accurate, biblically speaking. There you go. Very good. Hey, hey uh, real, real quick. Hey, uh, Sebastian. Say, uh, como se dice? Saturday. Oh, huh. Well, is that a coincidence or what? Sabado. Sabbath. Saturday. Okay. Sorry, Andy. I just saw Sebastian's pretty little yeah, face back there and thought of that. I said to him, I'm like, you know, this came about early in the church's life in the first century, second century. Yeah. Yeah, first day of the week. Yeah, that's it. And, and it, it's almost, um, I don't know. It, it's just interesting because when you go to the law, you see that it's the day of rest. Like the stipulations are all about rest. Now, of course, eventually synagogues were made, and the law never talks about synagogues. But they gathered in the synagogue on the Sabbath, which makes sense. It's your day of rest. That's when you gather. But the law's stipulations were always about rest, and it was always about Saturday. And so then to say, well, now it's actually about Sunday and it doesn't have to do with rest. It's about uh, church primarily. No, I, I shouldn't say it's not about rest. They would still maintain that, but they would say primarily it's about corporate worship. It's just kind of silly. Man's laws on top of God's laws, which isn't good. Jim. Yeah. Right. Yes, there would be a time of everyone gathering together during the special offerings and yeah. Yep. Correct. Right. Yeah, the every the every week Sabbath was concerned with rest. Yeah. 
Other thoughts or questions? We've got some time. Second quote from that last guy. Second quote from the last guy, which said, If Christ really is the standard, the Christian will obey the law of love, and in so doing, will also obey the Ten Commandments. That one? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, a lot of that's agreeable, though we just have to be so careful because um, we, have ne- we, we don't have in the New Testament the goal of Christian sanctification to keep the Ten Commandments. That's never the goal, is to keep the Ten Commandments. What's the goal? Christ-likeness. And which is higher, Christ or the Ten Commandments? You better believe Christ is higher because His love went beyond the law. He died for His enemies. That's above the law, isn't it? That's beyond the law. And that's the Christian love that we're sanctified by. That's the Christian love we're to grow in. So even though there's nothing disagreeable fundamentally with that quote, uh, besides the the Sabbath issue, um, it still just doesn't encapsulate what the Christian life is all about, would be my response to that. Andy? Yeah. Yes. There you go. He the, raising the stakes again. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think, um, right, yeah, they would never, and, and that's what they're very clear on, is that there are no curses of the law that come back, but you have to keep it. <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> yeah. That's what I was going to, yeah, I was going to say too. It ties back into the five-point Calvinism business. How do you know if someone's persevering as a saint? Well, their life evidence is law-keeping. How, how does a saint persevere? By clinging to the laws of God, they would say. So just a different art, kind of articulation than what we see in the New Testament. Correct. Very clear on that. Yeah, they're not saying that at all. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Yeah, they would say it could all totally be boiled down to that. But, but they really want to bring you back to this Ten Commandments stuff. Because they say the Ten Commandments is already a summation of the whole moral law. And love your neighbor. And that's what they say the Ten Commandments is. The first, the first table of the Ten Commandments, the first few laws, uh, the commands that are there, that is love God. And the second half is love your neighbor. So they say the Ten Commandments explain those two, and the ten are explained in the 613 of the whole law. Sure. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, the, it's the holiness code. 
God is revealing his holiness in it. And so we're, we're not saying <laughs> that the law is bad. We're not saying the law is irrelevant. We're not saying any of that. Um, what we're saying and pushing back against is this idea that Christians would be sanctified by it or that that would be the goal for Christians, would be to conform to law. Instead, Christians are sanctified by the Spirit as we are conformed to Christ, who is higher than the law. That would be our, our beef with that. Melissa? If they answered that, would they not agree? Um... Well, according to, you know, like R.C. Sproul's quote, uh, you know, Christ, Christ came to keep the covenant of works, which is keeping the law. So the whole idea of like Christ being above the law, they don't really like that. Like I had one guy um, I was talking to online when I mentioned to him the loving your enemies. Christ taught love your enemies. The law doesn't teach that. But then he cited from Proverbs where it says that. It's like, well, that's not the law, though. I mean, it's in the Old Testament, but that's not the law. The law was given through Moses. That's how Paul uses the term law. That's how he talks about the law. Um, and then Christ, of course, went on to not just teach love for your enemies, but then he actually died for them, uh, which is higher than that. And we're told that we are to be conformed to that, the love that lays down uh, your life, you know. So, so there's this real desire to want to tie the love of Christ to the Ten Commandments or the standard to the Ten Commandments. Because that feeds right into the covenant of works and the whole thing. Yeah. What he was quoting from, from Matthew 5, Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. They'll say, well, that was really the original standard of the law. He's not elevating the law. It was just misunderstood yeah. by people. And so he's taking them back to the original standard. Yes. Which then you have to say, well, where's that, you know? Because, and, and, and we get... But then we get made fun of for saying, you have to show me in the Bible. You're just being a biblicist. Just embrace the theology and go with it. Quit demanding that every word be spelled out, Andy. Okay, before I say something I regret, I should pray. Lord, thank you again for this night and for the wonderful time together. Give us uh, all safety as we head home and a sweet night's rest that we continue to think about one another and serve one another throughout the week. And uh, we ask that you would, by your Spirit's power, conform us to our Savior, who is uh, the highest standard of all perfections, of love and of everything. Help us to keep looking to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.